This is Food First Michigan on News Talk 760 WJR. Sponsored by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food secure state, and by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan. Now here are your hosts, Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome everyone, and thanks for listening. Some years ago, I was discussing with the policy director of a United States Senator why I believe the senator should vote a certain way on a specific bill. I laid out my reasoning in a logical manner. I was sure to include the senator's own language and phrases as I framed my reasoning. The young man, who had tremendous responsibility and was under a great deal of stress because he was the one who would have to convince the senator to change their mind and therefore their vote, looked at me, interrupted me, and said, Stop, Phil. You're confusing me with facts. God forbid. Therein lies the problem. Don't confuse me with the facts. The great scientist Isaac Asimov said, There is a cult of ignorance in the United States, and there has always been. The strain of anti-intellectualism has been a constant thread winding its way through our political and cultural life, nurtured by the false notion that democracy means my ignorance is just as good as your knowledge. Whether the topic is food security, unprovable notions about the people who need help, food waste, or a host of other related topics— We must rise over the previous thoughts to discover new ones that enable us to realize better ways of solving difficult problems. Research, data, science should be the drivers of our policy, but surely history can teach us that unless we learn from it, we are destined to repeat it. Here to enlighten us, inform us, guide us, and inspire us is our great friend Cheryl Kirschenbaum. You do not want to miss this exciting show with Jerry, Cheryl, and me on this edition of Food First Michigan. Good morning, Jerry. Good morning. Always great to be here. And you know what I'm going to say next. Yeah, I know. Quit talking and let's get uh, our guest (laughs) introduced and online. So uh, returning to the show for us, uh, Cheryl Kirschenbaum, who is the uh, director of At Science Debate and the host of Serving Up Science on PBSDS. So Cheryl, welcome back to Food First Michigan. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a treat to be able to talk to you both again. Well, it's great to have you. Um, You know, so a lot of the content that I follow on social media is on Twitter. Um, And so I follow you, and you are one of the most intriguing and interesting people on Twitter. Uh, Your perspective is so genuine and so spot on, I think. And uh, I think you can make folks on the left and folks on the right turn toward the center and really see a lot of wisdom and perspective. And I appreciate that about you. And um, so that, that's kind of where I saw some content that we wanted to talk to you about this morning. Well, thank you so much for those kind words. And I really think a lot of the issues that are central to what I'm passionate about and what you're passionate about don't really have a party affiliation. We all want people to eat and to be healthy and to see our communities and our neighbors 
do well and grow. Well, that's exactly right. So let's let's talk a little bit about, and I've never quite heard it phrased this way, but the question you put on Twitter was, when do we get to phase out all-you-can-eat buffets? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's it's not solely something we do in the U.S., but it's very popular here and possibly the place we do it the most. Um, we love our all-you-can-eat buffets. It's a lot of food, usually for not so much money, but they're often a real waste of our resources at a time when we need to be thinking carefully about how we're using energy, how we're using water, how we're producing different greenhouse gas emissions. And usually they produce a ton of food and you can't even take your leftovers home. So the incentives are all wrong where you pile up your plate, most often with food that's not so nutritious and healthy, and then you have to dump it at the end if you don't finish it. So it's just this really inefficient uh kind of relic uh, that we that we did for a while but we know better now that we shouldn't be continuing yeah so you know the 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 there's there's 25,000 interesting things about how does something like that come about um so so i think one of the things i'm really interested in talking about uh just specifically about that topic is how we in in a certain way, glorify overeating. Mm-hmm. You know that somehow it's a good deal, right? That we've convinced ourselves, hey, this is a good deal. So even mm-hmm. if even if the cost of doing business, which is what you're talking about, well, what's the cost of doing that business? It's a huge amount of waste. It's a huge amount of energy being produced for food that's never going to be consumed at a time when there's still a lot of people that don't get enough to eat. And yet the business model is what it is. It says, well, that's the cost of doing our business, right? And the mm-hmm. consumer says, hey, I'm getting a good deal. I guess on some level the logic of it is pretty obvious. Yeah, I mean, so think even more big picture. So a lot of the folks that I work with and I see everyday professionally, they look at some challenges, whether it's a climate change challenge or it's a health challenge because we have high rates of obesity and high salt diets and things that aren't so good for our bodies, really dragging on the healthcare system as well. And they look at that and they say, well, you know, let's just all go vegetarian or let's all go vegan because that would be great for the environment and, uh, and, and great for our bodies. And it's just not that simple. So we look at what's motivating people to make the choices that they do and say, go buy cheap meat at a fast food place or eat a lot of inexpensive meat at a, at a buffet. And you can't make decisions for other people that have different uh, reasons that they make deci- that, that, that they're making the choices they are. Um, fast food is, cheap and buffets are cheap. It's a lot of food for not so much money, which definitely matters. And when it's available in a place that might be a food desert or a food insecure community, people are making decisions about transportation costs, uh, how far they have to travel to get food for their family, uh, when they can take off of work, things that the very privileged among us maybe aren't thinking about when they're advising people that, oh, just, just eat vegetables and you'll be fine. Um, There are so many more important factors that are inherently part of the decision-making process that each of us has about what we eat than 
we account for when we just make broad recommendations that should suit all of us. It's why we have a saying on the show that we use periodically, and that is, the less you know a about a problem, the easier it is to solve. <laughs> I, think that's, I, might, I might use that too now. That's so true. But that's the danger, right? Is that you, a lot of the things we do, a lot of the habits we have, we've gotten into those not really out of a place of understanding, right? Mm-hmm. It's just a place of what fits our life right now, whether that's convenience or whether that's cost or whether that's just what we grew up doing, right? Habit maybe is the best way to say that. That's a lot of what drives our day-in, day-out behavior. And most people mm-hmm. get up in the morning and have a idea of how they're going to spend their day based on that information. And so I know a lot of what you do is try to educate us all about what this really means. And it's one of the things I really appreciate about how you approach science and reality. You're, you're very thoughtful and funny and insightful about, well, what does this really mean? And I, I appreciate that a great deal. And I think that it's so important when we think about solutions to some of these food challenges and more broad challenges, that we really take into account the fact that we can judge things from our own experiences Mm. and how we've lived, but much of the rest of the world lives quite differently, even here in the United States. And until we start including them in the conversation, we're not going to be able to create a better tomorrow. She's Cheryl Kirschenbaum. She's our guest today on Food First Michigan, and she'll be right back with Jerry and I in just a moment. Contact the Food Bank Council of Michigan at fbcmich.org. Now back to more Food First Michigan with Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Cheryl Kirschenbaum, tell us about your Twitter handle and how folks find you. <laughs> well, you can find me on Twitter at Cheryl underscore, but it's spelled S-H-E-R-I-L and then that little underscore after my name. If you leave that off, you find a man who I think is from India, but also seems very nice. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta have the underscore. Right. Well, we think people should underscore everything you do, so that fits for our show. Oh. I think so. So... <laughs> Um, take us to a tweet that you shared with us that has some, what I'm going to call startling uh, statistic and, and facts here that should really inform us about um, the urgency as well as some of the best practice, best behaviors we should be incorporating into our lives now in regard to food waste and climate change. Sure. Well, when it comes to climate change, a lot of us are looking for these big, fancy solutions that we have to invent and innovate our way to get to. And really, if we could just waste less of the food that we produce, it would take us a long way toward making things a bit better. So we produce all this food all around the world, and one-third of everything produced for human consumption gets wasted. In the U.S., it's actually in the 40%. It changes a little bit each year, but Uh, 40-something percent of the food that we produce in this country is probably wasted. And at the same time, something that the three of us I know are really focused on, more than 820 million people are going hungry. Hmm. And in terms of energy production, because it takes a lot of energy to, to move all this food that's wasted and produce it, fertilize it, package it, store it, refrigerate it. The, the actual, the, it's called the cold chain. The, the part for refrigeration takes a ton of energy. Right. Uh, it produces a lot of greenhouse gas emissions, especially methane. And if it were its own country, 
food waste would rank number three in greenhouse gas emissions, which is absolutely wild. It takes up more than a quarter, 28% of our agricultural land. And it costs us in the U.S. $218 billion a year. Now imagine what we could do with an extra $218 billion to fight hunger for all of those folks who don't have enough to eat. Yeah, the so, biggest mm-hmm. anti-hunger program is the SNAP program, you know? That's $70 mm-hmm. billion, just to put that in perspective. That's about $70 billion that we spend on hunger relief through SNAP. And yet we waste $218 billion growing food we don't eat. Exactly. And there's places that we can't recoup the cost. There's waste that happens at the farm that maybe just things roll off a tree and get spoiled. But a lot of the waste in the developed world, so in places like the U.S., the vast majority of it happens at our homes, at the final point where the food winds up. And that's because we're a wealthy country. We don't feel like we have to eat everything on our plate, but we can do a lot to control portion size and really just uh, how we use food um, and be a little more respectful of, of what we buy and what we use and what we waste. You know, since you've been coming on the show, I've been convicted. <laughs> and, and, and that's wait a, a good, minute, wait a minute. That's, been, that's, that's a good thing because uh, I really think that Christy and I have made a conscious effort not to waste the food that goes into our refrigerator. So we're really, we're, you know, like it means we have to make an extra stop at the grocery store maybe midweek or something so that, you know, whatever we're going to cook is going to be a little fresher as far as, you know, fruits and vegetables or that kind of thing. Okay, so what? It, it didn't sit in the refrigerator for 10 days and spoil, and then you just took it out of your vegetable bin and threw it into the trash can. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's you know, when you hear over 40% of waste is coming out of our refrigerators, there's something we can do about that. Yeah, I'd really like to see a policy change on that. I think we talked about this the last time you were on the show, but I think we should have to pay something for organic waste, period. Well, it is a priority uh, of the USDA right now. It's something that we spend a lot of time working on at Michigan State University and a question that we look at with our food literacy and engagement poll. And we do see a lot of attention to food waste from the general public, which is encouraging. But at the same time, we aren't getting all of the policies that we could use to do a little bit better. But at least we're focused on moving in the right direction. Yeah. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to let's circle back for just a minute and talk about that, because, um, you know, like right now we have uh, like I've got a trash can that I put out on the road and I've got a recycle. So are you saying that we, Jerry, we should have like a um, an organic recyclable and whatever we put in that is something that we ought to be paying a little bit of contribution toward yeah and i know you know we pay taxes to have garbage pickup and those kinds of things but it all becomes very mercurial in terms of understanding what does it really mean so even some of the things that we put in our recycling bin really don't get recycled 
they can't be recycled, but that we put them in there and and the either there's too big of a quantity or it's not the right things. And so I'm not saying anybody's purposely trying to fool anybody. I'm just saying there's there's a lot about the garbage and recycling pickup that happens that we don't really have a clear understanding of. I think one of the big parts of that is organic waste because uh, partly just from this conversation, when you understand the consequences of that much organic waste, it should make you think differently. It should make you go, oh, but the truth is, you know, we're not motivated by things that don't cost us anything. I mean, you know, whether that's time or money, we're more motivated when things actually cost something and we can see it right in front of us. And I know people hate to have, you know, more to do in terms of separating their garbage and I get it. But I mean, how do you get massive scale behavior change without drawing attention to it in some way like that. And maybe it's not workable. It's not my expertise, but... Well, but, you know, there's folks like me who listen to Cheryl and go, oh, I can do better than this. Yeah. And, you know, and I should do better, and I'm going to do better. But what you're saying is some people need a bit more motivation. So well, if it costs them something, they might be a little more prone to take care of it yeah well even even educating people is a lot of work you know uh, again most people don't get up in the morning and go i hope somebody educates me about food waste today <laughs> it's just not how life works right it's not what's on my mind it's you know i got something to go to tonight and my kids are in the you know choir concert or whatever else is going on in my life right i'm focused on my plan whatever that plan is so whenever you try to get a massive public response to anything your first challenge is it's not what people are thinking about. So how do you get people to think about it? Well, you know, you, you talk to municipalities about, hey, you know, here's a potential revenue stream, and it would be good for people to do differently anyway. Maybe that's a way to educate a bunch of people who aren't getting up in the morning going, I can't wait to learn more about this. Cheryl, what do you think? Well, I think I think it's a, a top down and a bottom up. I mean, I think these things go hand in hand. So you have the cultural change. Maybe we need cultural change in our attitudes about what kind of food is acceptable. Um, there's these ugly fruit campaigns, but a lot of people think if their apple or their strawberry doesn't look perfect out of the container, they need to throw it away. We need to get over that. I mean, we're lucky to have all this food, and a lot of the stuff that's perfectly fine never gets purchased. You know where a huge amount of our food gets wasted? The grocery stores, because we are so focused on this idea that the sell-by date or the best-by date or the use-by date is like dogma for when something <laughs> is horrible to eat. A lot, of those, a lot of those dates are completely arbitrary, and they're there because consumers want to find them. On things like milk, they're obviously important, but there's tons of food that doesn't need that stamp on it. And then what supermarkets often do is they don't even wait till that date they throw the stuff out days before. So you get all of this food waste piled up in the dumpsters behind supermarkets. That's perfectly good food. And that even if they don't want to sell it can be redistributed to underserved communities, communities who are at risk and more vulnerable to still be eaten um, because there's nothing wrong with it. Now there's new technologies that have been uh, kind of put out, not necessarily adopted yet. The technologies where say on a bag of lettuce, when the lettuce starts to release certain gases suggesting that it's going bad, the bag itself would change color. 
So it'd be more visual and a, a real way to tell when that food is going bad as opposed to whatever stamped on the container. There's little things like that that can um, encourage us to think more about our behavior. But I think exactly what, what Jerry's talking about as well um, in terms of kind of the, the policy and, and creating the right incentives to give people more to think about when they're shopping uh, and when they're over shopping in many cases to limit the amount that they're buying that maybe they don't need. So there's lots of stuff for us to do mm-hmm. at a personal level, but then there's lots that's coming down the pipeline from a technology and innovative level that can really do a ton to change the way we shop and to make things a bit better in terms of how much we waste. That's why we have her on the show, top down, bottom up. That's a great perspective. Absolutely. Hey, let's do this one more time. Stick around with us, Cheryl, if you will, for another segment. That's Jerry Brisson. I'm Dr. Phil Knight, and this is Food First Michigan. Food First, Michigan. Once again, here's Phil and Jerry. Welcome back, everyone. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight, with our guest, Cheryl Kirschenbaum, who is the director of At Science Debate and Serving Up Science at PBSDS. You're so busy, Cheryl, so thanks for taking time to be with Jerry and I today and all of our listeners. Um, so you've got a couple of things coming up here media-wise that's talking about these topics that we're discussing today on Food First Michigan. Tell us about those. Right. Well, thank you again for having me. We're going to start our Season 2 of PBS Digital Studios Serving Up Science, which is uh, their, their short videos about different food-related science topics. So the first one is all about the science of chocolate, and that one was a lot of fun to do. Oh. And you can find it on your PBS, uh, sorry, on your smart TV if you find the PBS app, you, uh, it's also on YouTube. Uh, so I'm really excited about that one. That's, all, that's awesome. I, I, I think my Christie would definitely be watching that one. If it has anything to do with chocolate, she's interested. I can tell you there's well, a lot really more fun. cabbage than chocolate wasted. <laughs> <laughs> I, I get to learn a lot when I make it, and I get to eat my way through each episode, too. So the chocolate one was especially fun for me. <laughs> wow. And you know who else is a chocolate fiend is uh, Katie DeVoe, who works to schedule everybody for this show in uh, the Food Bank Council office. And so Katie will be tuning in, I'm sure. Oh, uh, yeah. She'll hear this, <laughs> and I'm sure you'll hear about it. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so oh, Well, I hope you enjoy it. Well, there's lots of, you know, a, sh- a couple of sh- times ago when you were on the show, um, I got into a little bit of a Twitter war with CNN because they had a person on there that they put as a science expert about food and food waste, and that person was obviously not qualified, and I kept telling them they should call you. And, um, <laughs> oh, I know who you're talking about. I don't want to mention that person's name. Right. But right. Uh, misinformation about food is such a problem, plaguing so much of the work we do at Michigan State. It is. It is really, you know, I mean, even when you talked about the sell-by date, I have this discussion in my house regularly, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not winning yet. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I mean, I, and same with me. You know, this is our work, right? It's yeah. our life's work, and we spend a lot of time educating people about um, the sell-by dates and when they're okay, and even dented cans and all of the other things that are probably okay to eat 
Um, and yet, even you know, when the when the expiration date on the milk is passed, you usually have days at least what, where it's still perfectly good. And I say to my family, just smell it. If it <laughs> smells okay, it is okay, right? It's you don't have to look at the date. Just smell it, Mm -hmm. and it's going to tell you when it's bad, right? But there's just such a nervousness about. But if I drink spoiled milk, I might get sick. And it's like, well, I promise you, you won't drink it if it's spoiled because it's gonna it's gonna smell that bad, right? (laughs) But like you know, this is the. I think though that what you know one of the primary reasons that this topic is so important to our work is that we have to realize that one of that hunger or food insecurity is solvable in part because we clearly make enough food. Mm. It's not our capacity to make food that's creating a hunger problem, right? The the it's our habits. By and large, it's our habit. So how do we harness the energy that's being wasted in food that people are just thoughtlessly buying and then not consuming? How do we harness that and say, you know, really, if you took that percentage of the money you're spending on groceries and spent the same amount, but allowed 30% of it to feed hungry people because that's what you're wasting, the whole problem would be solved right now. We would have no more hunger. We would have a safety net that would work for everybody. Mm. And it wouldn't cost anybody one more dollar than what they're spending now. So much of our conversation about problem solving is how we need more money. But that's only a perspective. The, The real perspective I think we have to have is we have to do better with the money we already spend. And it wouldn't cost us any more to solve some huge societal problems. So I'm going to tease that up for you, Cheryl, and get your thoughts about that. Oh, boy. That, that's a big one, and I do agree with it, although I think it's important to point out that, yes, right now, 2020, we do produce enough food for everyone, but it doesn't reach everyone, and that's because of a system with a lot of distributional shortcomings and economic and social inequality. Uh, but... The population is increasing. The Green Revolution only took us so far. We are going to have to really rely on research and technology to continue to produce enough food uh, for our growing, uh, growing global population. That said, yes. Oh, my goodness, yes. There is so much we can do with what we have now to limit the amount of food insecurity that we, that we see, uh, both nationally and here in Michigan. Uh, I, I hope we get there. Uh, I, I hate seeing those billboards every time I drive down the highway about uh, how many children are food insecure in food insecure households. I mean, people in general, but as a, as a parent, I can't imagine what that must be like to go home and not be able to feel you can provide enough for your kids at home. And I also want to just add a bit that even though we can be hyper aware of the food we waste, we shouldn't make it a source of our guilt, at least on a large scale, because I am someone who should be more aware of this than anyone else. I work on food waste issues. I study food waste issues. Um, I can also admit that I go home, I have two kids under the age of 10, and they don't always eat what I prepare. And it's incredibly frustrating, but I can't get it right every single time. And that's okay, too. But I think broadly, if we can be more aware of our food waste problem 
and be a little more thoughtful when we're grocery shopping, when we're planning events, and when we're planning meals. We'll all do a little bit better and maybe bump down that 40 or 30 percent to something a lot more reasonable and feed a lot more people in the process. You know, just jumping in here on the food, uh, the food we grow and the people that are in need and how we're not linking those up. But, you know, one of the statistics you shared, Cheryl, was 28 percent of agricultural land is 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 really spent growing the food that we waste. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's like the, 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 the horse before the cart. It's, it's, it's the, you know, the chicken and the egg. I mean, if, if we start working on both of these things at the same time, then we're going to meet somewhere in the middle that's going to allow us to impact both food waste, climate change, and hungry people. 100% agree. You know, one of the things you mentioned briefly when we were off air was how meal kits are actually having a role in this. And I thought that was really interesting, too. It is. So a lot of people are turning on to these meal kits that ship a box to your house once a week and have a couple nights dinners in there. And on the surface, I was guilty of this. Initially looking at that, I thought, oh, what a waste of packaging. This is so ridiculous. Uh, It turns out, and there's a brand new study uh, out of the University of Texas at Austin on this, turns out that uh, when you factor in all the transportation and everything else, it's actually less energy intense to be getting these meal kits if you're willing to recycle the, the things that they come in. And the companies themselves, Blue Apron is one example, but many of the companies that are very popular are super committed to tackling food waste. So you might just get two scallions, but those are two scallions you're going to use. You're not going to toss the rest of the bunch. And that goes for all of the things they ship because they're, as they say, perfectly portioned. But actually, the meal kits can help us really make a dent in our food waste challenge if people are using them responsibly. And by that, I mean doing the recycling and uh, using things as appropriate. And so that's encouraging because there's been a real shift and boom uh, to these meal kit products. And I think we're going to see that over and over in different industries as more and more awareness about our food waste problem is out there. She's Cheryl Kirschenbaum. She is the director at Science Debate and Serving Up Science at PBSDS. She's our guest. And um, yeah, just to say it, you're our authority here um, on oh. these matters. <laughs> and we appreciate you being willing to come on to our show, you know, periodically and really help us and our audience understand how important these issues are as well as how they're linked together. Well, it is an absolute delight to talk to you both anytime. Uh, it's, it's really a treat for me. So thank you so much for inviting me on again. Jerry and I are back to wrap up this edition of Food First Michigan in just a moment. Thanks for listening, everyone. Jerry, Cheryl Korshenbaum, I just love having her on the show. Man, I'm telling you, you can see why she gets a lot of media attention. She knows a lot. She's fun to listen to. 
Um, she's so easy to just talk to, you know. So it's a it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure, and it and it's such an important issue when we look at food security to think about food waste. Important enough that most major grocers have it as a platform for moving forward. Kroger zero hunger zero waste. Right. Both are important. They go together. They're connected. And Kroger's not the only one. Um, you know, again, most major grocers and retailers are trying to address this issue of you know how do we waste less food um, so I mean it's a it's a motivating topic it's one a lot of people are interested in and it's one that has profound effects on our work so what if I wrote you a check right now for one thousand eight hundred and sixty six dollars what would you do with that I would put it to immediate and good use, getting food to our hungry neighbors. $1,866. That's the average amount of food that we waste in our households. That's the average American household. Yeah. Yeah, $1,866. So somewhere between $218 billion that Cheryl talked about and a couple of other studies that even bumped that up toward $240 billion. So the average household, when you divide all that out, $1,866. Yeah. And I mean, really, you know, when we think when we think about what our network does, right, in terms of how we turn dollars into meals, I mean, you know, you take that $1,800 and you multiply it by four or five, right, which, which our network produces meals per every dollar, you, that's a big number. That's oh, yeah, it is. Well, and, you know, our average cost of buying fresh produce is somewhere between 12 and 14 cents a pound. That's a lot of food. Yeah, yeah. So, and, of course, one of the big initiatives that we have is to actually work with growers so that we can help make sure that they don't leave food in the field that they've spent energy growing, you know. But there's a lot of economic realities to that that, that have to be addressed, but that's what we're about, you know. Difficult problems are still opportunities, and as we solve them, those opportunities become reality. And we have said many times that is how you're going to permanently fund a sustainable safety net. It's not going to be doing more of the same. It's going to be learning how to do things both more and better. And so food waste is a huge opportunity for us when we look at ultimately how do we create a safety net that works for everyone. So we've heard the recurring theme throughout our week here is um, it does, it's not enough to do to work harder at the same thing. You've got to work smarter. You got to work better. Yeah, you got to bring people to the table who know more than you about things that you haven't thought fully about, who can help you create the system that takes advantage of the opportunities that lay before us. And that is why talking to Cheryl is so important and so interesting and exciting to our work. She helps us understand the systems that exist today in a way that we can craft a better way that doesn't necessarily cost more money and produces a lot of results. You know, one of the remarkable things about Cheryl um, is, is her tone. You know, she's very knowledgeable, very smart about this, pays the price to learn and prep, prepare. And as you said, that's why so many media outlets, PBS among them, are coming to her. Um, she, she understands this 
relationship between how much food we grow, how many people are hungry, and the effects that all of it has on the climate. But she's not, she never sounds angry about it. You know, I got friends on both sides that I can't hardly hear what they're saying for the tone that it's being said in. And Cheryl is like a breath of fresh air in regard to that. Well, and a lesson for us all when it comes to what dialogue should be. You know, healthy disagreement is important because we're not going to solve every problem without you know, working through those areas that our experience or our education is different from somebody else's. And so we've got to come to some way of thinking together, right? Mm-hmm. And and you can't do that angry. You You have to do it from a position of just, I mean, curiosity is only the beginning. Joyful curiosity maybe hmm. is where we're trying to get. Well, I just wanted to remark that I think her tone is refreshing and that while it's fueled by science, she's she's not taking up any – she's just letting the science fuel the debate and she's communing it, communicating it in a, in a very pleasant way to hear. Yeah. And I encourage everyone to follow her on social media. Cheryl is a S-H-E-R-I-L underscore Cheryl. Um, and so – I encourage him to follow you on Twitter, too. GCFB Jerry with a G. That's it. And me, Dr. Phil, 14. Uh, you can find us all there as well. So, last word for you, my friend? Well, again, great show, Doctor. It's always a pleasure. I hope our listeners enjoy it as much as we do. Well, I, 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 we're, having, we're hearing great reports, so um, we'll stay at it together. Time for a little food for thought. Moral, economic are all great reasons to do more and better when it comes to food waste. Moral because I can't help but think of the phrase, waste not, won't not, and therefore, yet for the grace of God, there go I. Economically, because it's costly at every level to waste food. Buy what you need and eat what you buy. Climate change? Cheryl Kirschenbaum has shared some dynamite insights on the effect of food waste on our planet. It's time to do more and to do better. Thanks for listening, and until next week, it remains here. Food First, folks. Food First. Food First Michigan, presented by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food-secure state.